When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi there, and welcome to the Explaining History podcast. And uh, today, I'm, I fancy talking a little bit about the Balfour Declaration. Uh, not uh, in small part, because I read two superb books on it. Um, the Balfour Declaration by Jonathan Schneer, um, which looks really at um, the period of time from about 1914 to the Declaration in 1917, and uh, James Barr's A Line in the Sand, which looks at Anglo-French relations over the Middle East um, from the uh, World first, first World War, sorry, all the way through to the 1950s. Um, both brilliant reads. Um, the the Bar book, perhaps a little more accessible, um, but the, the Schneer, packed with detail, brilliant scholarship, brilliant analysis. Anyway, after singing the praises of those two writers, let's talk a little bit about the Balfour Declaration. Okay, For those who aren't obviously scholars of 20th century Middle Eastern history, the Balfour Declaration was the letter sent from Arthur Balfour, the British Foreign Secretary, in 1917 to Lord Rothschild, um, the uh, real heart of the Jewish community in Britain, um, the uh, most significant and, and wealthy um, Jewish socialite and uh, financier um, living in Britain, um, announcing that uh, the British Empire would support um, a Jewish homeland. They didn't use the word state, but a Jewish homeland uh, in Palestine at the end of hostilities uh, during World War One. So... How did this come about? Well, in 1914, Britain goes to war with Germany, but later in 1914, she also goes to war with Germany's now Ottoman ally. Um, The Ottoman Empire had been through a series of fundamental changes uh, in the previous decade. In 1908, the Young Turk movement, um, the uh, uh, revolutionary uh, nationalist and in some ways, progressive, modernist um, uprising, overthrew Sultan Abdul Hamid and declared a a new state of affairs existing in the Ottoman Empire, a decidedly more um, anti-clerical, westernised, liberal and um, modernist um, movement. Uh, The kind of movement, really, that had shaped uh, much of Europe um, seven, you know, 60 to 70 years beforehand, um, sweeping away ancien regimes throughout the 19th century. 
these were men who felt that it was time, Turkey's time to catch up and the, the rest of the Ottoman empires as well. The empire had been in a state of fairly serious decline uh, over the previous um, half century and um, the First World War um, was looked as if it would present huge problems for the empire. The, the ruling triumvirate of Pasha's um, who had taken power after the um, overthrow of Sultan Abdul Hamid, um, weren't completely decided amongst themselves whether going in on Germany's side was a particularly good idea. And the um, existence of a, a modern, uh, secular, uh, modernising leadership uh, in Istanbul was, in certain parts of the empire, deeply unpopular. We only need to look at the uh, reaction of Sharif Hussein of Mecca, who would later lead the Arab revolt against the Ottomans, um, to understand some of his motivations for doing that. Uh, the, the popular view that we get from uh, David Lean's um, Lawrence of Arabia is that the Arabs are the oppressed peoples of the empire, which in, in some ways they were and in some ways they weren't, um, and they, they wished freedom. One of the motivations that um, the Sharif Hussein had was not so much to free his people in the, the classic um, uh, formulation, but to actually rebel against the modernising instincts of the, um, um, the young Turks. And it was certainly the intention of the Sharif Hussein and his sons to establish a very theocratic state once the war was won. Initially, they had their eyes on establishing a state in all of Arabia, uh, in the Arabian Peninsula, and in the north, in Palestine, and Syria, and what is now Jordan, and Iraq, really all, all the way up to Persia, um, which would have been um, a, a Sharia law, fundamental Islamic state, um, and a, a rejection, really, of the, um, the, the modernism that was being uh, proposed and implemented by the Young Turks. The British had sounded out uh, the Sharif before the war um, and before there was the prospect of uh, facing the Ottoman Empire on the battlefield as to the possibility um, as to whether uh, the Arabs would be useful allies, saboteurs, rebels, fifth columnists, what you will. Um, Lord Kitchener, in point of fact, was the person who uh, pursued this. And the matter was left as a kind of a, a, a possibility, a what-if, until obviously hostilities broke out. The, the Sheriff seems to have had um, an unusually uh, benign view of the British, an unusually trusting view of the British, and saw them as uh, honourable gentlemen who would stick by their word. Um, eventually, the... Um, uh, the British come to disappoint the Arabs, but that's a story for later on. The British High Commissioner in Egypt, Sir Hemi McMahon, and Sharif Hussein of Mecca exchanged a series of letters between 1915 and 1916, and the uh, strong impression McMahon gives in the letters to the Arabs is that they will be able to have a large Arabic state uh, once the Turks have been defeated, one that includes both Syria and Palestine. In roughly the same time period, Sir Mark Sykes, the British cabinet's Arab expert, uh, conferred with his opposite number, Georges Picot, 
on the future of the Ottoman Empire once it had been defeated by the French and the British. And the decision that they eventually come to, outlined in the secretive Sykes-Picot Agreement of 1916, is that the British will gain access to uh, Iraq and Transjordan, and the French will have a large Syria incorporating parts of southern Turkey, and they will create the state of Lebanon. Palestine was going to be exist under an international mandate. It eventually, following the Paris Peace Conference, falls under a British mandate. When the Arabs eventually rebel uh, against the um, Ottomans and uh, attack them up along the western uh, seaboard of Saudi Arabia, what is now Saudi Arabia, uh, the, the kingdom of the Hejaz, um, all the way up to the Sinai, the um, British and the French had already made a deal between them which undermined the fundamental war aims and objectives of the Arabs. The uh, chances of there being this enlarged Arab kingdom were now fairly minimal and the prospects of a large Western inter intervention and presence in the Middle East for the foreseeable future were, were going to be there. The Arabs had no idea about this, but um, T.E. Lawrence, the uh, British uh, soldier and intellectual and um, de desert warfare specialist, uh, had every idea about this. And in the uh, Jonathan Schneer uh, history of the Balfour Declaration, it becomes very clear that Lawrence felt that the Arabs had been absolutely betrayed and he felt terribly guilty on this matter. He knew that the men that he was with, that he admired, were fighting and dying for, in, in essence, for nothing. One reason that Schneer puts forward, which I find fascinating, for the needs to defeat the Ottomans um, was the, uh, the fear amongst the British uh, that uh, the Germans might get a far greater foothold in the Ottoman Empire and might even use the uh, Ottomans to encourage a revolt of Muslims worldwide, which would encourage, which would cover the three hundred or so, three hundred million or so that fell under the auspices of the British Empire. Another interesting aspect of the Balfour Declaration is the relationship between the British War Cabinet and Britain's Jews. And there was a sort of a rather um, unspoken anti-Semitism uh, that existed um, that may led the likes of uh, Lloyd George uh, particularly to believe that the Jews were the key to winning the war. In another excellent history on this particular subject, uh, Tom Segev's One Palestine Complete, uh, well worth a read um, if you can get your hands on it, uh, the, the picture of a um, suspicion of, the, of world Jewry, um, which is a term which was used obviously by um, various uh, establishment figures at the time, this is not a term I am by the way endorsing, um, unless we kind of go down some horrible David Irving kind of tract. Um, the, the, the suspicion um, of world jury uh, was actually viewed um, by the War Cabinet as being um, a potential advantage, i.e. 
um, the war had reached a deadlock by um, 1915, and anything to break the deadlock uh, was being entertained. And the the, the belief that um, if somehow, if somehow the world's Jews could be brought into the uh, the Allied camp, then they would work whatever mysterious conspiratorial magic they had in order to try to uh, bring America into the war or bring American finance on the, more firmly onto the Allied side. And then um, following, the, uh, following the Russian Revolution of 1917, which you know, uh, casual anti-Semites assumed was the work of the Jews, uh, again, the, having the Jews as a, uh, an important ally may, would probably help keep Russia in the war. Now, all this, of course, is, is total fantasy land um, when you look at the, the means available to the likes of Heim Weizmann and the rest of the, um, the, the Zionists in Britain. These are comparatively impoverished and poorly connected people, and it's only through um, extremely talented political contact-making that Weizmann manages uh, towards the end of, um, the end of uh, World War I to be um, taking tea briefly with Lloyd George. So there, there is no uh, kind of, obviously, no, none of these kind of conspiracies uh, outside the imagination, uh, fertile imagination of certain journalists and writers. However, the fact that um, the... Uh, Allied, uh, the British War Cabinet believed such things is actually more important than the, the the rather less exciting reality. The fact that the British War Cabinet actually supposed that um, the Jews could, uh, if they were appealed to, help the Allies um, was, was is a very interesting fact. Perhaps this gives us an indication of the desperation of the Allied powers at the time to try to win the war. And it also gives us uh, an indication of um, uh, popular anti-Semitism. And these were ideas thought by people who consider themselves largely fairly tolerant and, and looked at the, the things like the pogroms of Tsarist Russia with, with horror. Uh, but making kind of casual references to the conspiratorial nature of Jews, that was basically OK. Um, anyway... The decision to uh, grant a homeland to the uh, Jews in the Middle East is, you know, not entirely born out of cynicism either. There was, from the likes of Arthur Balfour, who's this kind of enigmatic character who didn't really seem to be uh, animated by very much at all or passionate about very much, but suddenly finds the cause of, of Zionism um, a very important thing to... Um, to pursue. There is some evidence of, of a, a genuine um, sense of, of mission, a genuine sense of uh, that it was Christian duty uh, to return the Jews to um, the land of Canaan uh, and to um, f complete some kind of, of, of biblical destiny. Um, there is a sense also that uh, having a non-Arab state or a non-Arab uh, peoples in the Middle East would do something to to civilize what was largely seen by uh, the Western Allies as a very backward and barbaric region, um, and there was a belief um, 
that um, ho hopefully the Arabs would see the um, industrious Jewish example and follow suit. Um, you know, one only needs to look at other aspects of the British Empire to uh, find other such kind of out there uh, notions of um, and sense and sense of sense of mission and improvement and uh, and all this kind of thing. Interestingly, the Jewish community in Britain was far from united on the subject of establishing a mandate in Palestine or a, um, a, a national homeland for the Jews. There were a great many assimilationist Jews in Britain who felt that really they were British first and Jewish second, and that um, by creating a Jewish homeland, you were going to be wrecking the dreams of assimilated Jews around the world, and it would give an excuse to anti-Semites everywhere to say, there's your homeland, go to it, you're not welcome here anymore. Thus fulfilling, um, the making anti-Semitism and the exclusion of Jews in Europe uh, a self-fulfilling prophecy. Ultimately, uh, it's the, the Zionists in Britain who prevail, it's the Zionists who finally get the ear of the government um, and make the case to them for a, a Jewish homeland uh, in Palestine. A case, as I've mentioned, their government wasn't entirely unsympathetic to in the first place. Anyway, now this is by no means an exhaustive history. It's very difficult. This is such a complicated matter to shoehorn this into less than 20 minutes, obviously. Obviously, it's going to not going to do it justice. So I would urge you, if you if you are wanting to learn more about this, look at any of those three books that I've mentioned: uh, the Line in the Sand, the Balfour Declaration, or One Palestine Complete. All three of which can give you a really rich understanding of this subject area. Anyway, I hope that's useful. Uh, if you've got exams coming up in the next few weeks, best of luck. I'll be thinking of you, um, and I've recorded further back on this podcast uh, some great resources for people who are struggling with essays and that kind of thing and there'll be a few more of those to come uh, in the next few days or so anyway thanks very much for listening and i'll catch you next time bye bye Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.